like a meditation on like family and love. I know. With mushrooms? With mushrooms. But I think the mushrooms are symbolic, maybe. Oh, they're always symbolic, though. That's true. A mushroom is never just a mushroom. <laughs> and with that bit of wisdom, again. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year, everyone! I thought you were going to say blast off. Isn't that the song? Storytime, Corrine. That is my usual, my usual refrain. Five, four, three, two, one, blast off. But this is not Zoom Zoom to the Moon. This is Keep It Fictional, your podcast for readers, by readers, spoken by readers, reading reads. Um, and we are celebrating the start to uh oh 2023. That's terrifying. As terrifying as 2022? I don't know. Yes, 2022 was an interesting year, to put it um, lightly, but it was full of some very interesting reads. In terms of like your reading in 2022, Virginia, did you see like any themes? Was there any like big literary trends that you noticed? Uh, for myself, octopus. That's my literary trend, octopus. It is weird that like in your year of reading that there was more than one octopus and more than one like iteration of what an octopus can mean and or symbolize. Like that was kind of creepy. Yeah. And there's a couple more coming this year. <gasps> so yeah, octopus. Year of the octopus. I don't know. Who knows? Okay. Any like themes that other than octopus, octopi, octopuses, any themes that you kind of see looking, looking in your crystal ball? I think like cozier stuff. But even some of the um, some of the fantasy is kind of more on the cozier side, which is not my type. Maybe that's why I didn't read any, because it was, like, it was all like cozier. I find, um, yeah, and and a lot of like I think historical fiction is pretty big. What did you notice? Oh, twenty twenty two cults, always cults, which kind of made sense. A um, lot of like in terms of what I noticed in like thrillers and mysteries was a lot of like the thinly veiled real events with like the VIN numbers filed off um, to more or less success, I would argue. Um, I think true crime continues to be a trend, but is is kind of the pendulum is swinging over to fiction more than nonfiction is kind of what I've seen. Yeah, a lot of historical fiction. World War Two made a huge comeback in 2022 and i suspect that it will do again this year i think again like people feel that world war ii kind of represents like that adversity overcoming adversity which hopefully we're doing hopefully we're coming out on the other end um and i guess also lots of like i mean it's the time right like i think you know people that have written books during the pandemic uh they are coming out so there's a lot of kind of like that type of stories Two, whether it's like a symbol or like, you know, actual pandemic stories, it seems like they're slowly coming out. Yeah, it, it I, that is a really good point is to think like anything that's published right now was not written last year. It was written a while ago. And so we're just kind of like catching up on the end of it, which is very interesting to see what is going to come out of 2022, which was such 
to use my favorite word, it was a wild year um, to see what kind of uh, things will come out of it. But yeah, you're, you're totally right in that it's going to be a lot of pandemic literature that was written during that time that is published now. And so, yeah, maybe some of that coziness, some of that nesting. But it's kind of like, because the world is so wild, as you called it, I mean, I think the fiction writer, I feel like they have to work a lot harder to, to shock us <laughs> because it's kind of like, well, we've seen it already. That's not fiction. So yeah, it will be very interesting. Yeah. So of all of the books that are being published in the first four months of next year, or as we record this next year, but as you are hearing this, the current year that you're in, how is it? Is the weather good? Have things kind of like sorted themselves out a little bit? Hopefully. We are coming at you with uh, five picks of our what we're most looking forward to in this new reading year. Any like reading resolutions for you, Virginia? Yes, many. I think I'm still, I still didn't really do very well with like, you know, stopping. Like once I finish a book, like stopping and really kind of um, think more about it and then actually maybe write it down because I'm so bad at remembering things. I think that's what I'm really still trying to do more of this year. I feel like, you know, we deserve to read what we want to read. So I'm not going to like try to say, you got to read like 10 of this and 10, like, nah, forget it. I think I'm just going to read whatever I feel like. We all have a good variety of stuff that we like to read. So, you know, there's going to be different types of things. But yeah, like I'm just going to make myself read what I want to read. I think that that's my resolution. How about you? Uh, I have to say that's a very excellent resolution. The kind of like sitting with what you've read and digesting it for a little while. Um, one of the, oh, this is going to really hurt me to say this out loud. One of the resolutions that I'm going to make is I'm actually going to start like not on because that would kind of destroy me as a professional librarian. I'm going to start annotating my books. I know, but with post-it notes, I have a million post-it notes. Or taking notes on like, I know, I know, I'm taking notes on things that I find really profound. So um, last year, my favorite book was Idle Burning. And for the first time, like some of the 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 lines and descriptions in it were such gut punches that I actually found myself for the first time in my entire life, like grabbing a post-it note and putting it there so that I could refer back to it and look at it again. And I think that kind of like in, in the same way that you're you're kind of thinking is like meditating and really reflecting on the book and its meaning and thinking about it on maybe a deeper level. And I think that kind of like annotating might help with that. And I, I feel that there are certain lines or things that I feel like I could go back to in, uh, in like Paul Simon times of trouble and kind of look for and gain some insight on. So I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But you know what? That's the thing. Like, that's what I discover. Like, ebook is really good at that because it doesn't hurt my brain that I'm highlighting with my finger and it's there, but it's not hurting a actual book. So I, it really works for me. And, and that's kind of why I kind of started doing it is because like, that's okay. I'm not highlighting. I'm just like electronically highlighting this. This doesn't hurt anybody. I can erase it anytime. And so I feel like that actually helps. And yeah, that's have been like, I never really understood this highlighting business, but I exactly what you say. Like sometimes there's just lines that you come up with. I'm like, I, I want to be able to just read that line again someday. Um, and sometimes it's just a really, like you said, a perfectly crafted sentence that you want to keep um, or sometimes it's just like something like super funny that you want to just like have or like it just you know and, and it's kind of nice to remember like throughout the year then you kind of remember all those moments when you're reading these books and and what 
what they mean to you. I think it adds to that a little bit. So yeah, but yeah, like I'm only doing it on on a ebook. Like I, I cannot, cannot. But Post-it is an excellent, excellent way of doing it. Yes. It just gives me another excuse to drop another $100 at a Momo in their stationery section, which I'm very happy to do. But yeah, like I know you don't reread, but I do reread. And I think that that kind of annotation, you know, certain things will stand out to you at certain points of your life. Every book that you read, every time I read it, it's a different book. Every time I read it, I'm a different person. So I think that will just kind of be like an interesting little time capsule. Um, I'm also, my other resolution is to buy more books. (laughs) Because I just don't, I don't feel like I bought enough this year and I want to, I want to support my writers. So I'm buying more books. Yes. And everyone pre-ordering these days, especially pre-order if you can, because that really helps make sure the publisher knows that people need this book and make sure that they're available in supply. So pre-order, support your writers, just like Corinne said. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent point, Virginia. Um, So I'm going to put all of these in my little cart uh, probably from Monroe's because they're offering some free shipping lately uh, if you spend over a certain amount. So that's a wonderful excuse to, again, show your support for those authors because those pre-orders really do make a huge difference in how much money and marketing is invested in a particular book. And, you know, the market is crowded. And so you want to you wanna support support your faves or your future faves. Who knows? Um, speaking of our future faves, uh, we are going to count down in, I, for myself, no particular order of what our top five books that we are looking forward to, or at least five. I don't know if they're my top five, but they're the five that I wanted to talk about today. Um, and I'm going to start with my number five, which has a title that I think captivated everyone in the library when it came up. And I am so excited for this, which is described as Knives Out and Clue meet Agatha Christie and the Thursday Murder Club. Come on. Come on. It's not a Venn diagram. It's kind of like Mickey Mouse with like an extra ear of everything that everyone can love. Our story is about Ernest Cunningham, who is called Ern or Ernie, and he kind of does wish... (laughs) Wish that he'd killed whoever decided that the family reunion should be at a ski resort. Now, as a lover of mysteries and an enjoyer of tropes, everyone knows you should never go to a ski resort because that is a one-way ticket to murder town. However, Ed has killed someone else. Ed has definitely taken a human life, but we don't know who it is, but he's going to tell you. And this is unfortunately not just his trait, but a family trait. Because the family that slays together stays together. And what is described as an originally, a very original and not to be fiendishly clever classic and modern murder mystery called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Benjamin Stevenson. And I'm very excited because the blurb is my brother, my stepsister, my wife, my father, my mother, my sister-in-law, my uncle, my stepfather, my aunt, and me. (laughs) So excited. The premise essentially is that everyone in his family has killed someone. Some have killed more than once. He's not being dramatic or kind of trying to like confabulate a little bit. It's just the truth. Some have killed for good reasons. Some have killed for bad reasons. And some just happened. But you know what happens at a ski resort? Someone's going to go down. And so they have to figure out who amongst the family of killer is the killer this time. So I know that I'm not the only one in this library looking forward to this title, Virginia. I mean, even just the title, it's perfect. It's perfect. It absolutely is. And I think we already have a sequel plan for everybody at my work has killed someone. (laughs) That was our version of it. So once we read it, then we will will write the sequel. I have a follow-up to yours, really. I know. I actually have planned my order because there's one book. There's one book that I'm like, I need to talk about this book first. But 
because I feel like this other book really, really complements the one that you just talked about. I guess I should talk about this. And I don't even know how this ends up on my TBRL, but probably because of murder um, and because of the hilarious premise. Um, but I'm glad I read it. Like, and, and it is a book that is set in a remote village in India. And there, Gita is known as the Churu. Churu is kind of like someone that will cast curse on you. Kids make up chants about her, about what she would do to you, give you misbehave. Adults gossip behind her back about what she does. And it's all because they think that Gita has killed her husband, Ramesh. She didn't. Ramesh walked out on her, but everybody thinks so. And she didn't really bother to correct them because when people think that you are a churu, when people think that like, you know, they should be kind of scared of you because of your powers, it comes with perks such as, you know, like being a single woman, being a widow now with no kids, there is a bit more autonomy when people don't want to mess with you because they're scared of you. So she kind of took advantage of that and just let them believe whatever they think. Even her microloan group kind of talked behind her back, even though these are the people that she kind of hang out with. In her village, local women can receive together, if they group together, they can receive a loan and that they can open up a small business so that they can like become a little bit of an entrepreneur. And so Gita herself has a jewelry business, and but because like it needs startup money, so they kind of get together and they get a loan from the government and then they gradually pay it back. That's how they sort of support their business. And there are five women in the group and they all think the same of Gita, even though they won't say it in front of her, but they all think that she has also killed her husband. One day, one of the women, Farah, did not show up to the meeting where they're supposed to pay back their part of their loan. So everybody was like, well, Gita, you don't have a family. You don't have kids to support. It makes perfect sense that you cough up another $200 so to pay for Farah's share. And so Gita did it. The next day, Farah showed up at her house and Gita think, oh, okay, Farah must be here to pay back the loan. But no, the first thing she noticed Farah was that Farah has a black eye and has got some purple bruises on her face. And Gita know these black eye and bruises very well because she used to have that on her face when her husband was still there. So she kind of know what's going on. And Farah is here not to pay her back, but to say, hey, I need your help, Gita. I need your help to kill my husband. <laughs> and Gita is like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Farah's like, well, you did it. How did you do it? Did you poison him? Did you just push him down the stairs one day? What did you do? Can you tell me? Help me, please. I need your help to kill my husband. <laughs> Gita was like, no, I, I, no, it's none of your business. I didn't do anything. Just get out of my house. I don't want anything to do with whatever you're doing. And, and so Farah left. But the next day when Gita was walking by, she overheard a conversation with Farah's husband telling someone that how Gita is like paying um, extra money for Farah. You know, I guess I'll just get Farah to ask Gita for extra money and then we'll pay you back and all that stuff. And so Gita knows that, okay, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe Farah's husband does need to die. And so things sort of spiral out of control from there. 
This is um, a, I believe it's a debut novel. This is called The Bandit Queens by Perini Shroff. This is a really funny, of course, like sort of dark humor, but really funny kind of novel. I love the, the five women. They are just absolutely hilarious. Gita is very foul-mouthed. So it's just, it's like sort of unexpected in many ways. I love the refrains of the women when they talk about their kids. They would complain and they go, oh, but, 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 you know what? The joys of motherhood. And like every, and one of them would just feel compelled to say, yes, yes, you know, so rewarding. So, so rewarding. And it's just like the most hilarious kind of conversation that these women have with each other. And of course, you know, it is very much about sort of social commentary on the double standards, you know, on, on like, you know, what men can do and what women cannot do and how like these five women are trying to take back their lives and try to survive in a male-dominated, caste-driven kind of society, especially for Gita, who doesn't have children. Like, you know, there's a lot of taboos about that, you know, and so like, you know, she's trying to like fight against that. And and it's it's like they they have this this automatic response for all the women. They always, you know, whenever something happens, they was like, they will say to the husband, yes, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And that's just an automatic thing that keeps coming out from all of them. And it's like for them to slowly realize that, no, no, that's that's something going on here. That's not right. Um, so about a string of women, about female friendship, and maybe in the Virginia book, even some second chance romance, which is just weird in my book. But it is just so enjoyable. It is delightful. I think you would love to meet these five women. And I think it is a perfect story for anyone who just loves something light, but also have some seriousness in it. And I think it would be a great one to read with Corinne's book. So it is The Bandit Queens by Perini Shroff. Ooh, a bit of an unexpected pick, but I can see why you would like it. Murderous social commentary? Yeah, it's the murder, I'm sure. <laughs> so, got me in the first place, but it was weird because I was just like reading. I'm like, this is very much fiction that I don't normally read, but it just they're just so funny. They are like really funny. Perfect. And everyone is looking for kind of like that next read after the uh, Thursday Thursday Murder Club, right? Like something that's cozy, but a little bit sharp and just like well well written that you can kind of give that sort of book to everyone. So, okay. It's going on the list. Um, my next number four pick, you're definitely not going to have a book that uh, is equivalent to it because it's it's not your thing. It is not your uh, thing at all. Um, I am choosing a urban fantasy romance. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, so our, our heroine is Ellie. And as the descendant of the Chinese god of medicine, uh, she was supposed to be the doctor of the family. She's the middle child in between her younger brother and her older brother. And with all of her, her skills, she was supposed to make something of herself. Now she finds herself underemployed and underappreciated. She works as a magical calligrapher for a fairy temp agency, as you do. Nevertheless, on the side, she sometimes does a little work that is above her pay grade in writing high-powered glyphs, specifically for the very good-looking, mysterious stranger named Luke, who is her side client, and obviously she has a giant crush on him. He is a half-elf. I know, as I'm saying these words, it really doesn't sound like a book, but I'm going to keep going with it. He is a half-elf, and he has some of his own deep 
dark secrets. He works for a particular agency that uh, he is indebted to. He is supposed to bring what is left of her family to justice, and he has to do it perfectly. He is under a crush, which means he's kind of like an indentured servant for his uh, job, which sometimes feels like all of us. And to make sure that he kind of writes this curse and heals the people around him, he needs to perform everything that his boss asks him to do perfectly. And maybe get like a vacation day in there every once in a while. So... When Ellie saves Luke's life and he is given the assignment to terminate her to get this justice, uh, he has to figure out where his loyalties lie. Elle also has her own secrets. And okay, this is where the blurb on the back of the book doesn't make any sense. So she is pretending that her older brother is dead, even as she takes the blame for her younger brother who killed him, which... I don't think make any makes any sense because if she's pretending her older brother is dead, that he's not dead. But her if her younger brother actually killed him, that he dead. So I'm not exactly sure what's going on with the family situation, but I'm just going to say that it's awfully complicated. Um, so they are going to have to like work together to sort it out. You know, murder, magic, mafia, mystery, and makeouts. So. Those are the keywords that I am working with in this kind of like urban fantasy, which quite honestly reads like every single trope from AO3 fan fiction. But I'm into it. Um, this is Mia Tsai's Bitter Medicine. Definitely in the science fiction. I was surprised that you ordered this one, Virginia, if I'm being totally honest. As I was flipping through, I was like, oh, okay. Well, it's it's very romancy, and the cover is like very deviant art circa 2003. But there's just something about this plot that really like speaks to me. And I'm definitely going to give it a chance. Yeah, I, I saw that one and I was just like, yeah, but like I was intrigued. I was intrigued by the you know the the Chinese calligraphy and then the French elf. I'm like, hmm, that's... I, right? There's there's a lot of stuff going on, and apparently it's like a fusion of a bunch of different mythologies as well. It's like all the world mythologies. I think it's like in New Jersey or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> all of them like coming together and like interacting, and I love a good like the magical world is like secretly in the real world and you just kind of have to find where it is and like her magical system seems kind of like interesting the word french elf made me laugh so hard honestly that's why i chose to talk about this well you can tell us what it's about because it does sound like your kind of book because when i read it, i'm like mm, not for me but you know that sound intriguing all like you said the combination of all those different concepts yeah i don't think i did it very uh, any justice in describing what it's about but i think it's gonna work it's going to work. If if anything, I'm going to giggle every time I see the word French elf and the name Luc. So like it, it'll be an enjoyable read. Yes, that's all that's all we ask for that we can enjoy it. All right, number 4 Virginia, do you have a book that matches? Oh, no, I don't, but like this is definitely a comfort read. Um it is also not I mean, it's not a surprise that I picked this book, but it's a surprise because of the content because it's really not my type of book. But listeners, Technically, we are recording as Corinne pointed. It is actually December that we are recording, even though you're going to be listening in 2023. But it's not even 2023 yet. But I may have already read my favorite book of 2023. TJ Klune is back in April. And if you have not read TJ Klune yet, please go do that now. I will sit here and wait for you because reading TJ Klune is probably the most comforting thing I can ever do for myself. 
Again, quoting Vigi Schwab, which I think has the best description, it is like being wrapped in a big gay blanket. And we all need that. For me, it's like watching a classic Pixar movie, a good one, not Cars, good ones, where I'm crying when nothing is happening. That's how I I always feel when I watch those movies. Like I have such emotional attachment to the characters that like if they get a paper cut, I'm crying my head off. And that's kind of how I feel about all the characters and all the stories that TJ Klune writes because I just care so deeply about them that I'm just like crying buckets because I feel so, I'm so worried for them that something bad is going to happen. Um, so he has a new book coming out in April. I think it's as good as The House in the Cerulean Sea. Um, signature style, Fang Family. So if you love a Fang Family, a warm, cozy read that also really, really tuck at your heartstring, you have to check out In the Lives of Puppets by TJ Klune coming out in April. Stick together. Run if you have to. No dallying. How about drilling? No, no drilling. And above all else, be brave. These are the rules that Vic and his family live by. They live in a forest, kind of hidden in a remote forest, not really seeing anybody else. And there's Vic and his father, Giovanni, who is a, an inventor. And he always tells Vic the story of how Vic arrives. It was one day Giovanni used to live by himself. And one day these two humans came along and they were being chased by something, they said. And they have to run. But they begged Giovanni to tick their baby. And that is how Vic arrived in his family. Vic is a human boy, whereas Giovanni is a robot. And he tries to best his best to raise Vic. And, you know, being a robot himself, at first he doesn't really know what to do because Vic seems very squishy and doesn't know how to deal with this squishiness. But Vic grew up and especially took after his father, learned a lot about putting things together, about creating things and making things with what they have. And that is sort of how he came across the other two family members. One of them is a small vacuum that is a very nervous vacuum cleaner named Rambo. Well, they call him Rambo, but there's like a bunch of letters. They couldn't quite read it. But, you know, it's wrong, a Rambo. And he is always quite nervous and he's always sort of looking for, for Vic to help. That's why one of the, the lines that they, they have in before they go on any adventure in the guidelines is be brave. It is really, really for Rambo. And then there is also Nurse Ratchet, which stands for Nurse Registered Automaton to Care, Heal, Educate and Drill. And Nurse Ratchet is the best robot you ever met because she's kind of like a sociopath. <laughs> And she's very, very much into drilling. I mean, it is part of her, like, you know, like her name. And very much into drilling. And in fact, she thinks that everything should be solved and could be solved by drilling. And together, um, they were they were kind of robots that have been abandoned in the scrapyard that Vic has found and fixed up. And so now together, they they hang out together. And of course, both of them being robots are very fascinated by human anatomy. And there's lots of hilarious chats about what Vic has to do with 
the, his body that they don't have to do. And every time they go on adventures, usually to the scrapyard, that's where they they recite this little like guidelines to each other um, to get themselves pumped up for their little adventure. Because the scrapyard is fairly dangerous, especially because Vic is, again, squishy. So many things can hurt Vic and they want to be very careful. Giovanni doesn't really like Vic playing in the scrapyard or going there because, again, he's very worried for Vic. But Vic wants to be there because he's looking for parts. He knows that Giovanni has a mechanical heart and mechanical things, they will one day stop working. So Vic wants to make sure that if that happens, Vic can have a replacement heart for Giovanni. And so he and Rambo and Nurse Ratchet, they go to the scrapyard to try to look for bits and pieces that they can salvage so that they can build together a heart for a replacement. But one day, in the scrapyard, they found another robot. Another robot that seems to still be functioning and not so friendly at first. And this robot is going to change their life because it is going to bring all kinds of secrets, uncover all kinds of secrets about their past, especially Giovanni's past. And it's going to bring a bunch of danger and dangerous people to their family. I love this found family so, so, so much. Do not hesitate because it's about robots. It is really, they are just as human as you and me. They are just absolutely amazing. It is one of those books that is just so comforting. When you want like to feel like there's hope in humanity, <laughs> that's where I go for. Go for a TJ Klum book because it is just full of compassion and then full of like that sort of found family love that you feel. And and like I said, it is probably going to be one of my favorite, if not the favorite book. So I will see what, what comes after in the new year. But be prepared to have your heart broken, but also to feel hope, to feel love. Again, um, this is In the Lives of Puppets by TJ Klune coming out in April. I'm crying already. It's so good. It's so good. I love his book so much. Um, and if you don't want to listen to me, it is House in the Cerulean Sea is also Sadie's favorite. So... Listen to Sadie. Sadie's always right. True. Trust Sadie. Trust Sadie. Well, I also have a book about kind of like human connection and relationship and, you know, the people that we need to reach out to when we're when we're feeling like we're falling, except mine's sad, like real sad, like it's going to be a bummer. It's going to be a real, real bummer. Um, but I'm very, very much looking forward to this book, which is the newest one by uh, Han Kang, who wrote The Vegetarian and Human Acts, and who is a International Booker Prize winner. I mean, the cover, the cover, drink it in, drink it in. I honestly think this is one of my favorite covers of all time. Just even the font choice down to the color of the title and the author's name is so good. Um, so yes, this is going to be another kind of like heart-rending, emotional read. Probably going to cry several times, but that's okay. Um, it's also a mediation on kind of relationships. It's mediation on language, which I think will be very interesting. And yeah, it's going to be a baller. I mean, that be a W-L-E-R, as in something that you're going to cry at. Am I coining that? Yes, I am. 
Um, so this is the story of a uh, young woman in Seoul who is watching her Greek language teacher at the blackboard. Um, she has been taking these lessons, um, but to little avail as she is, she has lost her voice. She has lost her words. And at the same time that she is watching him, he is also kind of drawn to this woman without words because he is also experiencing uh, a similar loss and that his vision is, is diminishing and he will eventually be blind. These are two hurting people. Um, she, in a very small space, has uh, lost her mother and also has lost custody of her son. He is kind of torn between cultures, between languages, and is struggling to really understand who he is. Growing up between Korea and Germany, he just isn't sure exactly where home is for him and even who he really is. So this is a very, I think it's going to be a quiet story of these two people uh, meeting and coming together who are both in a time of anguish and pain, both of them losing something, but potentially finding something at the same time. What I really love about their writing is is the the beauty in the way that they describe human relations and the way that, you know, even in something, an experience that's so painful and so anguishing that they're they're constantly looking for the humanity to be found in each of these moments. It's it's going to be a heart-rending read, but I I I I Oh, when it's something that's going to be like so so heavy, it's like hard to say like I'm going to enjoy it. No, it's going to destroy me. But I really believe that um, Han Kong can kind of like put me back together, maybe a little bit better than I was. So if you are a, a fan of this particular author, which I think everyone should be, or just looking for a bit of a quieter story that that is going to look at the things that keep us together even as we lose. Um, I suggest you pick up Greek Lessons. That is an amazing like cover. That is so good. Like you just need to find out what is happening. Yeah. I was honestly like flipping through the new books and just kind of like seeing what was new. And I, it was the cover that got me. And then I realized who the writer was. And I was like, oh my gosh, like a double whammy of awesomeness. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually never read her book. So I need to get on with that. Because I feel like the vegetarian sounds like it could be my type of book. I just need to. It's your type of book. It's it's a you book. Yeah. <laughs> it's a you book. <laughs> kind of what I thought. I just, okay. Okay. Well, that's my uh, my holiday homework. Read Han King. All right. Um, so I'm going to also take us a little bit darker, I guess. Surprise. But like Corinne said, a book that I, I'm looking forward to reading, but it's not going to be the type of book that make me laugh or anything. I don't think. But Equally good writing from New York Times. They call this author's writing. It's this simple sentence by 10 sentence pleasure of them that they offer hundreds of baby dopamine hits, tiny baths for the pro snobs reward system. So I think based on what I remember his writing is like, yeah, that's absolutely accurate. It's going to be beautifully, perfectly crafted sentences um, in this book. It's a repeat offer for me. Um, there's a book coming out in March, I talk about his book in, a re in our retelling episode, The Ballad of Black Tom. 
I also uh, read Devil in um, in Silver, I believe it's called, way, way, way back. And I remember that was sort of the first book that made me realize, wow, like, you know, a book about someone who is kind of questioning everything, like, you know, like not really sure what's real, what is not real, could be so interesting. Like, you know, and I think it was one of the first books that made me realize that horror can be so much more and that is like a, a pretty old book too so I, I I love his writing and I'm very looking forward to this new book that he has this is Lone Woman by Victor Lavelle and he's gonna take us this time to old-timey American West story about a single black woman's attempt to survive in this harsh unforgiving landscape and the weather this is Adelaide Henry. She and her family has moved to California at first um, to live there, but now she is moving to Montana as a homesteader. Um, so it's, you know, when the government, they they kind of encourage people to, to move, to, to give you like free land, basically. Um, and all you need to do is to go settle in these remote places and then try to like tame it and cultivate it. And, and that's what she wants to do. And she read in the papers that basically Montana is the place to go to. It is a place of unlimited opportunities. And so she thought, yeah, that's where I need to go. Because, you know, after a few years, I'll settle down there. Um, then you get to own the land. And and even for a Black woman, um, because they are so desperate for people that this opportunity is even available to her. But first, before she go that, do that, she has to burn down her old house with her parents' body inside. And that's how we met Adelaide in the book, in the beginning. We're not really sure why or how her parents died, but she is leaving everything behind. Except she has a little traveling bag that has some of her belonging in it and a suitcase, a very heavy suitcase. Everybody always tell her how heavy, like, what did you put in it? Why is it so heavy? And this suitcase has a lock on it. And every time when she moves it or when other people are trying to move it, she kind of freaks out a little bit. And she always have to check whether the lock is still good. She doesn't want it to accidentally open because something bad is inside. And it contains this horrifying secret that it needs to be kept locked. And I am, you know, about a quarter into the book and I am dying to know what is inside this suitcase. <laughs> I need to know. So I think that would be what I would do like once I get off work today because I, I just need to know what's happening. Hell as the modern master of magical suspense or as one of the other authors said, give the literary gods mixed together Murakami and, and Ralph Ellison, that's what you get is Victor Lavelle. And I Cannot wait to learn more about Adelaide and her story. This is one of the many excellent books that are coming out this uh, March. It is Long Woman by Victor Lavelle. A classic literary question of what's in the box. All right. So we are down to our top two and or randomly placed two. And this one is kind of... 
I actually chose this one because earlier this year when we had the Getting to Know You episode for Gabriel, um, they had recommended reading The Secret History by Donna Tart, which I really enjoyed. And so that kind of led me down like a minor, minor little rabbit hole, maybe like a gopher hole of like dark academia stuff. And this is another kind of great author's take on the the idea of dark academia, but with a little bit of like cold case podcaster thrown in. So um, it is the newest book by Pulitzer Prize finalist and National Book Award. Oh, I'm going to go with finalist as well. I should have looked that up. Um, Rebecca Mackay, whose book greatly acclaimed The Great Believers. I have not read <laughs> I read one of their earlier books and really enjoyed it and just have never picked up their subsequent works, but I always felt like it was like a good friend who's kind of done well for themselves. So I've always been kind of like cheering for them from the sidelines, and maybe this will be the kind of like incentive to go back and, you know, read the book that almost got them a Pulitzer. However, this one is kind of interesting in that it feels a little bit more... I don't know, entertaining? <laughs> At least the premise sounds entertaining, and I'm hoping it is. Uh, so this is about Bodie Kane, who wants to leave the past in the past. She would probably call herself a success. She is a film professor and a podcaster of some acclaim. And she is constantly focused on going forward, on putting behind her what some people could call a rather tragic past. There was a horrible family tragedy that damaged her adolescence. She spent four years at a miserable boarding school in New Hampshire. And, of course, the murder of her former roommate, Thalia Keith, in the spring of her senior year. And although the uh, school's athletic tra trainer was convicted of this crime, there are still questions that surround it in the way that all true crime podcasts ask, is this really what happened? Bodhi's answer to this is, don't know, don't care. However, when her former boarding school, Granby School, invites her back to teach a course for cash and money, she finds herself back at her old stomping grounds, drawn back into her old life and circling around that question of what happened to her former roommate. The closer she looks, the more questions she asks. Did they really convict the right people? Did the police overlook others that could have done it? Is the real killer still out there? As she circles around and around this question, she begins to question herself. Is there something that she forgot or something that she didn't remember correctly back in 1995 that might actually be the key to this entire case? This is Rebecca Mackay's newest book, I Have Some Questions for You. And it is apparently as I see it, a stirring investigation into collective memory and a deeply felt examination of one woman's reckoning with her past with a transfixing mystery at her heart. I like a book that kind of has like a past mystery, especially one that takes place in a boarding school and someone in the present kind of investigating it. I like a book that kind of probes that idea of memory because it is so subjective. And I love a good, uh, uh, an examination of someone looking back on their past and realizing it wasn't exactly what they thought it would be with that hindsight. It also kind of 
seems a little fun. Like it's an actual murder mystery at the core of it, kind of like a good girl's guide to murder or uh, the newest uh, Simone St. James that she just finished writing from last year. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, like a literary book is taking on some of those tropes of the thriller genre. And I'm very excited to see what she does with them. So that is, I have some questions for you uh, from a writer with a really great backlist (laughs) that hopefully I'll be investigating. All right, Virginia, what's your number two? Is it a very Virginia book? Because I feel like this one in some ways is a Korean book. Is this a Virginia book? Oh, this is absolutely a Virginia book. Only Virginia should be reading this. Um, Yeah, so my next book, my next story is about family, about belonging, about the power of love about those strong, unbreakable bonds among loved ones. And of course, when you hear me talking about these themes, you know what is coming, a horror novel. This is a debut novel from a Mexican author, um, and it is called Monstrulio, and it is by Gerardo Samano Cordova. Content warning first, this does involve a death of a child. Um, so if that's not what you're into, um, please skip ahead. But this is a story about Margot and Joseph. Their son Santiago has died when he was 11. Santiago's health has never been the best. In fact, the doctors never thought he would survive when he was born, but he did. But all his life, Margot and Joseph will try to teach him to not get too excited because his lung can really handle all that excitement um, and he get really sick um, when that happens. So they they try to keep him just not too excited, you know, like not too stressed out and just make sure that he he give, he's they're always there, you know, worry about him and they're always there to take care of him if something happens. But he has passed away now and Margot is not ready to let go yet and Margot wanted something to remind her of her son. So before they took away the body, she decided to cut out a piece of his lung because his lung is the part where has sort of kept him alive for the past kind of 11 years. When Joseph saw what Margot did, he was quite horrified, but he doesn't really know what to say to Margot either. A few days later, Margot moved back to her mom, Lucia, and the housekeeper, Jackie, um, in Mexico City. As Jackie was helping Margot unpack, she found this jar, and inside this jar, there's this thing in it, and she asked Margot, what is this? And Margot explained, and then Jackie started telling Margot about this story of some twice-removed cousin who managed to grow an entire human being from a body part. But as she was telling this story, she started looking at Margot and she see this longing in her eyes and so she's like, no, Margot, you cannot do this because it doesn't end well. It is not what it seems. It is not going to have a good ending. Don't do it. But it's too late because Margot now thinks that there is a chance that she could grow a new Santiago from the body part. And she heard from Jackie, all she needs to do is to feed it. So that night, in the middle of the night, when everybody is asleep, she went down to the fridge, got some chicken soup, and she poured it into the jar. The next day when she woke up, she realized that all the chicken soup is gone. 
the liquid has been absorbed. Even those tiny little bits of vegetables that were stuck on the lung is gone. And she thinks the lung looks just a little bit bigger today. This, of course, is one of those stories, as I mentioned a few times, that it's a horror novel that does so much more because it really looks at what family is or what grief is and what you're willing to do because of love and what you're unwilling to do and what you won't do because of love and and the power of it and, and maybe like they say, the powerlessness of that. We we're talking about earlier about like, you know, highlighting lines being one of the things that sort of explain what, what Marco is doing is, is someone who is bringing a creature to life solely with their own grief and a prodigious unwillingness to let go. It's interesting because I think the first kind of third of the story sort of deals with that. And then it kind of moves in some interesting direction that I wasn't kind of expecting, but it's still, it expands sort of that family. It's not, it goes beyond just Margot and Joseph and and the new child, but it also expands to Margot's best friend, Lena, and her kind of relationship with Margot. And then it expands out to Joseph, you know, now finding a new partner and about to get married and what's what that's going to be like. Um, it's a really, it's it's one of those really like hard story to read and definitely like more like a, a meditation of what all those things are um, and and wrap up in a in a horror novel, which is the way I, I you know, as you know, like to consume these. But it's such a, like, I, I'm, I'm really excited for this new author and I can't wait to see what, what he does next because this is so interesting the way he he takes those ideas and i think like again just to give a shout out to all these really brave horror writers out there that's doing something so interesting with with the genre and i think like corinne said earlier a literary a writer who usually does literary fiction taking these tropes from different genres and and and, and writing a story but i feel like there's a lot of horror that are really exploring some different places and and it's one of those books where you could like you can put it in literary fiction but you can also kind of put in horror it's kind of like shadow sign it's, it's really well done um so yeah i i love this book it's not as gruesome as I made it to be I think it's just how it started um, and there's also like very tender moments um, that eventually they call the child Monstrulio and and what he the moments that he shared with with Marco with Joseph it's it's really quite touching so um, you know give you an info give you info like you know like to see what horror is doing um, you know and to to have a different kind of sort of experience with with horror novels I would highly highly recommend you to check out Monstrulio by Gerardo Samano Cordova yes it's a Virginia book don't worry about it if you don't want to read it it's super I mean very interesting and it's so interesting every week when you not every week but most weeks when you bring like a horror book to the table because it really like it seems like a genre that's really going there um it's yeah it's really like growing and expanding like what the definitions of it are yeah and i think like that's the thing right i mean like again we we talk about this like you know as genre readers we just i think sometimes people think genre is a thing and it is so much more i mean like any any other type of of stories there's just so much more to it um and i think being able to sort of take that like you know and and sort of have a horror premise that can attract horror writers but then it just hits you with this 
completely different sort of experience. Like I think it's 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 doing so interesting things, and I I'm loving all of it. So yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like if horror is the examination of like the anxiety of the age and anxiety of being human and the fear of the unknown, like it makes sense that in this particular time that, you know, they're, they are the ones who are really pushing the boundaries and examining and examining things at a closer level, but with more chicken noodle soup. That image would stick, like would stay with me forever. Cause I'm just like, okay, so of jar chicken noodle soup and you know because the night before they talk about seeing those vegetables stuck on the piece of lung i know <laughs> maybe i should just stop talking and then the next day they're gone and i'm like hmm yeah i yes all right kareem what is your last book <laughs> the images that haunt you the longest um all right well i'm back on my game again i'm back on my game every every year I choose one book that's pretty much just my wheelhouse that is exactly what I want is a big fuzzy blanket of what I want and what I want is a locked room murder mystery that's what brings me joy and again shout out to uh, Pushkin Press who is constantly publishing exactly what I want when I need it. And this was this was tough because they're they're coming up with a couple of really really great mysteries this year. But I decided to go with go back to the classics. Go back to the classics. And I chose as my last book to talk about The Mill House Murders by Yukito Ayatsuji. Again, I'm kind of cheating because it was published much earlier, but is finally kind of getting a proper beautiful cover and an English translation and is getting like lovingly lavished with all of the attention and care that it deserves. If this sounds a little bit like And Then There Was None, you'd be right. You'd be right. But it's a classic trope for a reason. Again, I don't expect that many twists and turns. I don't expect a literary examination of what this trope is really all about. I just expect someone to take a premise and execute it flawlessly. And I think that is what, I think that's what Ayatsuchi is going to do. So every year, a small group of acquaintances pay a visit to the remote castle-like mill house. Now, if we've learned anything from literature at all, is it that if you are invited to spend some time, like a weekend away in a, and again, the words remote house, remote mansion, remote island, remote ski chalet, you should just decline politely because it will probably end in your demise. This particular house is castle-like, which you know is a problem because there's going to be secret passageways, there's going to be weird drafts, there's going to be creepy statuary, all number of things that can end you. This particular house is home to the reclusive Fujinuma Kichi, who is the son of a very famous artist. And get this, who his entire life has worn a rubber mask over his real face since a disfiguring car accident. (laughs) Which is horrifying as an image and is probably going to play a large part in it. All of these red flags abound, but this year in particular, the visit is going to be disrupted by impossible disappearances. Uh Uh-oh, the theft of a painting. Uh Uh-oh, and who'd have thunk it? A series of baffling murders because they never stop with just one because you're stuck in this remote bathhouse in Peru. Like, you're stuck. 
you're stuck. Make sure you know your entrances and your exits at all times. Anyways, the brilliant Kiyoshi Shimada, our detective, comes in to investigate. But is he going to uncover the truth and solve the mystery of the Watermill House murders before he gets done did in? <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's going to be fine. But like, <laughs> you kind of have to end it on a question or some note of suspense. Like, we all know what's going to happen. He's going to solve the mystery. It's going to be weird and twisty and turny. And it's going to involve like a number of rooms and people's alibis that don't kind of work out. And you're going to try to figure it out before the detective. But you never, ever will, even though you have all the clues. And probably the writer is going to berate you for being like, oh, you're so silly. The answer is so obvious. And we're like, well, yeah, to you. <laughs> But these are my equivalent of chicken soup for my lungs, I guess now is the new expression. I just love everything about these. Um, it's by the same author who wrote the Decagon House murders, um, which I also really enjoyed. And again, speaking of like powerful covers, there's that that rubber mask that will haunt my dreams. So that is the Mill House Murders. Again, sometimes we just don't need you to do anything different. Just do the same thing and do it super well. Yes. And and that's the thing. Like I get the tropes are frustrating and annoying when someone kind of takes the wrapper of it but doesn't execute it to perfection. I mean, there's there's obviously something to be said for someone taking a trope and doing something new and exciting and like flipping it on its head. And I, I love that. I think we all love that to be surprised in that way. But sometimes it's equally as pleasurable to see like a master of the craft who fully understands the trope from all angles and to just beautifully lay it out for you. Have you read those manga? Like, the adaptation, I think, because there's a manga adaptation of one of them, I think. And I'm very curious to what that would be like. Because there's a manga adaptation of everything, I am sure. Oh, for sure. I think there's a couple of them that have been made into, like, movies that I wouldn't mind watching. But a manga is tricky because, like, part of part of the problem I have in solving these is that I can't easily imagine what they're talking about. Like, they give me a map and I'm like, okay, fine, house. The house. <laughs> I, I can't get into like the specifics of where things are. I just think house. So I think in a manga, like it might, it might give too much away, but I don't know. Like in the, in the hands of a great artist, probably not. But yeah, that would be very interesting to see one of those, those adapted into, to a more visual format. Yeah. But listeners, you know, now no ski resort, no remote mansion, no random island. Basically, when you're invited to any of them, just say no. Or, or at least have access to two forms of transportation that can get you out at any given time. And make sure that if there's like a like a blizzard or some kind of landslide that you still have an exit route. So like helicopter, plane, boat. So unless you own your own helicopter, don't. Just don't. All right. Okay. Well, for the last one, um, definitely helicopter features in this book also really i left this to the last because i feel like this is like the book that i think is the most timely one because if you in the past couple of years if you have been wondering like what day is it what month are we in what is time and if you feel like you've been asking yourself a lot more frequently all those questions and don't really quite know the answer, I think you will very much identify with our main character in this book, The Thing in the Snow. 
Hart works at a research facility. It is a facility that is temporarily not in use, so no research is being done right now. But they are employed as the caretakers, and they maintain the building until the researchers are supposed to come back. And this facility is in some remote place. You know, you know that you shouldn't be there. But some remote place, and if you look out the window on any of the floor, there's about five or six floors in here. It is just snow and snow and snow. There's nothing to see. It is just kilometers, kilometers of snow. That's it. And they were also warned: don't go outside because there's known to be some sort of snow sickness that will affect you. So just don't go out there. And every week. A helicopter will come by to drop off their assignments, and they will pick up sort of whatever reports that they have to send back. Um, any supplies that they request that they buy with their salaries, they will also get dropped off. And Hart works with two other people, Gibbs and Klein. And Hart is sort of the supervisor, and he he wants to be a a really good supervisor, and he wants to be there to motivate them. And he thinks that it is a really, really good chance for him to build up those leadership skills. And so he always try to like have different activities to make sure that they feel like they are a team. Every morning, he will allow coffee time together during work time. But even though they don't seem to appreciate it, they don't really understand what he's trying to do. But this is team building. Time, and they always open the assignments together because as a team they're going to tackle the tasks together, and the tasks are all kind of mundane and weird. For example, one week they would be told that okay, we need to make sure that the chairs are sturdy, so I need you to go and sit on every single chair in the building, and there's quite a lot of them. And then when you sit on it, try to shift your weight a little bit. Make sure that you don't fall. Make sure the chair seems sturdy, and then mark it off on the paper as a good chair. Or let us know if you need to replace a chair. Or the next week they would be told, okay, they're supplied with these like balls, and they will say, okay, put it on the table to make sure the table is flat. And that's what they have to test. And so week after week, they are given these assignments, and as you can imagine, it this could be kind of hard to motivate your team to work on these. Um, but that is the challenge that Hart has, and and he is embracing these challenges. During the week, he also take inspiration by reading this set of thrillers, and that's probably my favorite thing about the book. Is this set of thrillers about a character named Jack French? Jack French has this illustrious career already. is a world-renowned leader, and he is trying to write a masterpiece about management and about leadership. But very much like Jack Richard style. He always would travel to a place, thinking that oh, I'm going to go to this resort. I'm going to like you know spend some time writing my masterpiece. But he always end up getting stuck in these really dangerous situations. But instead of saving the group or whoever that he's stuck with, he has to find a way to coach people out of those situations, so that the people that you know that can solve the problems themselves, so that they can reach their own potential. And that is the way all these books are written, like that. And Hart enjoy these books immensely, and he try to like get inspiration from them on how to be a great leader. And that's kind of how he passes the weekend. And as the refrain in a lot of the chapters, they always say, "In this way, another weekend passes at the Northern Institute." Because after a while, 
you can't really tell what is a weekend, what is a weekday anymore because every day seems like the same. It is a challenge. It is a difficult life, but they persevere and the heart is feeling good about some of the things that he and his team can accomplish. But then everything falls apart when one day they look out of the window and one of them said, hey, what is that? And they all look out and they see this black object that is sticking out from the snow. They're pretty sure that it wasn't there yesterday, but somehow today there is a thing in the snow. And now suddenly that's all, at least what Gibbs and Klein could think about. That's all they could think about is what is this thing in the snow? And it's frustrating for Hart, who's trying to get them back on track and get them to work on the task that has been assigned by the company, but they just keep talking about this thing in the snow. Even more frustrating is that when they try to communicate to the management that, hey, there's something in the snow, we want to know what it is. But the management is like, if it's not moving, don't worry about it. But that's not a satisfying answer. And they all want to know what it is, but they're not allowed to go outside. They know that they will get sick from it. So how are they going to figure out what it is? And how is Hart going to keep his team together? This is Thing in Snow by Sean Adams, who wrote The Heap, which I think made it to one of my top five a couple years ago. And I think this is just like a really timely book for all of us who have maybe worked from home in the past few years, who have feel like we have lost touch with reality. We're not really sure what's going on anymore. You will very much sympathize with what Hart has to go through to figure out kind of what is real. Am I just imagining this whole thing as he go through his week? He's losing touch with reality. He he can like he can't even stand still. He keeps thinking he's hearing things. You feel like there's something going on and you just don't know and you don't know if it is you or if it is actually happening. And you start to think maybe like everything here is just in his head. Like he can't figure out what it is. It's been kind of built as a psychological thriller. I don't know about the thriller part. I think it's definitely psychological. It definitely messes with that. But it's about like sort of that kind of poking fun a little bit at at the priorities that we have in work, you know, like and, and what we kind of focus on and, and sort of the bu- bureaucracy of it all. Um, and it's it's quite funny at times, you know, um, and because it's just so pointless. <laughs> Everything seems kind of like pointless, um, you know, and 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 but yet like, you know, you you watch Hart being so like passionate about it, you know, even if it is just like trying to test if the door is creaking or not. So it's a fun, I want to say, a fun read, especially for our collective experience in the past couple years. So um this is uh The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams. As you were describing it, I kept thinking of like, it's pandemic experience meets among us. That actually sounds really good. They should just use that blurb. I'll give you, I'll give you that for free, even though the book's already published, but. <laughs> you can still use it. They can still use it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just, <laughs> I, I laugh so hard at that management series of books. Like it was just like, just the most hilarious thing. So yeah. Those are our picks. There's so many more books, so many more books coming out. It's really hard to pick five, but these are the the five that we're most excited about. There's so many, so many. There's so much good stuff coming out. So yeah, make sure to spend some time on that on order section of the library's website because that's where you'll find all of the hidden gems, um, including the 10 that we have talked about and the other 15 that our other book friends are going to talk about in our next episode. They're not going to be as good as ours, but I was just about to say that. I was like, they'll be whatever. (laughs) 
bet theirs won't have locked rooms and like people with yeah i don't think there would be a locked room there would be mushroom foraging i'm pretty give you into that i almost chose a book with mushrooms Ooh, like i know but it's not a horror it's like a meditation on like family and love i know with mushrooms with mushrooms but i think the mushrooms are symbolic maybe oh they're always symbolic though that's true a mushroom is never just a mushroom <laughs> and with that bit of wisdom, again, we've given you two great pieces of wisdom. Don't go anywhere remote with a group of acquaintances. Uh, always have uh, an exit strategy and <laughs> mushrooms are always symbolic. There you go. All right, readers, have a fantastic, fantastic start to 2023. And we hope you have many marvelous reads ahead of you. Mm, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.